Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Stacey Elder. I am Professor of History and Chair of History at Eastern Illinois University. And I am here uh, for the Society for the History of Children and Youth's online magazine featured book series, speaking with Dr. Lynn Curry, Professor Emerita of History at Eastern Illinois University, one of my former colleagues. Dr. Curry is the author of Religion, Law, and the Medical Neglect of Children in the United States, 1870 to 2000, The Science of the Age. The book appeared with Palgrave Macmillan in its Palgrave Studies in the History of Childhood series last year in 2019. Dr. Curry is the author of several important books on the history of law, childhood, and medicine. Her first book came out in 1999, Modern Mothers in the Heartland, Gender, Health, and Progress in Illinois, 1900-1930 with Ohio State University Press. In 2002, she published The Human Body on Trial, a source book with cases, law, and documents with ABC Clio's On Trial series that was re-released in 2004. 2007, she published The DeShaney Case, Child Abuse, Family Rights, and the Dilemma of State Intervention, which was then reprinted in 2015. And she is also the co-author with Chris Waldrop of a, um, I guess that's a, a textbook on constitutional history. So I would like to start Dr. Curry, by asking you about how you came to write this book. I think that your um, CV indicates your interest in the history of children and law and medicine, but I wonder if you could um, sort of give us a little bit of your intellectual journey toward this particular topic. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Elder. And I'm going to call you Stacy. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in some ways I feel like this was the book I was meant to write. <laughs> um, it took me a very long time um, because it took me down pathways I wasn't expecting to go, but I just went where it led me. Mm-hmm. Um, the topic itself is, as you mentioned, kind of a logical fit because it does cross boundaries that I've discussed before, the intersections of legal history and medical history and the history of childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I was aware of these kinds of controversies over religious healing, but I was actually introduced in a very concrete way, believe it or not, by a former student who actually knew a child who was at the center of one of the more recent 
controversial religious healing cases. A mm. little girl named Ashley King from Arizona. I don't believe I ever knew that. Yes. <laughs> and just talking with that student sparked, I think we all have that experience, right? It just sparked something in me. And I said, I really need to find out more about this, you know, really, really address this because something is really interesting about this topic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But many years went by and I, I did other things, but I always had it in the back of my mind. I started with the legal cases because th- that's how things come to our attention. And so that's the logical place to start. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of historical scholarship, an enormous amount of, uh, I'm sorry, I said historical scholarship. I meant to say legal scholarship uh, on this topic. Uh, really, the law journals are filled with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read a lot of this material, and it was extremely informative and extremely interesting. Nevertheless, it didn't approach the topic as a historian mm-hmm. would. So I was more interested in why do we see these cases appearing in the early 20th century? Why not earlier? why not later, right? I'm going to historicize this and say, what's really going on? Mm -hmm. And I found that historians were less engaged with this topic. And so it seemed to me there was some room to explore here. I want to give a shout out to the historians whose uh, work has been just really wonderful. Uh, Rennie Sheplin, Alan Rogers, and Sean Francis Peters. All three of them have written about children and faith healing and the law Mm -hmm. and all of their work is very very good and I really I stand on their shoulders what's different I think about this book and what I wanted to do is to really shift the focus so that the history of childhood was really at the center of the story Mm -hmm. so rather than framing it as sort of a um an eternal struggle between you know religious freedom and medical science I really wanted to look more concretely at what does this say about children and about the history of childhood. So that is how I started then down all of these paths. And ultimately, I said, well, we have a f- one thread that's the identification of children as specific physical beings with their own physical needs that mm-hmm. that set them apart the ultimate product of that is the emergence of pediatric medicine mm-hmm. but there's a lot more going on besides that it might be a good segue for to talk mm-hmm. about a little bit about what you see as the major contributions of your book can you tell us a little bit about your findings and mm-hmm. uh, and your main argument. Mm-hmm. My main argument is really that ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, if we historicize this, I think what we see is that these cases reflect much larger issues about how we think about children, and not just how we think about children, but how we understand children's physical beings, their metaphysical beings, uh, their legal rights. Uh, I, I saw this as ultimately much larger than you might 
realize if you limited your understanding to simply, you know, it's just religious freedom versus medical care. I think there's a lot more going on mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. uh, another question that we had to answer is, you know, why would people care? I mean, one of the things that struck me doing this research is people really, these were controversial cases. They weren't simply just parents' private decisions about what they wanted to do. People in the community got very involved with this. I mean, there's actually, you know, people are rioting. Right? There's, there's a lot of community interaction with this. People care a lot. And newspapers cover these cases um, to a remarkable extent. So clearly there's a whole other element here, which is child's child welfare, right? The mm -hmm. whole idea that this is a public concern. How, do, how does the health of children emerge as something that everyone cares about? Mm -hmm. And then there's changes in the law itself, which also struck me as being really interesting because on the one hand, you have courts wrestling with this idea that, well, look, we for centuries we have this idea that what adults owe to children particularly parents particularly fathers is the provision of food clothing shelter and this sort of vague category that they called physic that they mm -hmm. simply meant attending to the child who was sick right it's mm -hmm. very vague one of the things that fascinated me was the change in language, both in the court cases themselves and also in legal treatises, where they, in the end of the 19th century, they stop using the word physic and they start using the word medical attendance, right? Mm -hmm. now, we're, now we're into something much more specific. Mm -hmm. And then related to that, how states were passing child abuse and neglect statutes that would actually write this in. Medical attendance was a thing. Mm -hmm. And then um, failure to do that was neglect. So medical neglect was actually just this new legal concept that arises. You can't be guilty of that before it's possible to do anything about children's diseases. Um, and then, of course, bacteriology, the role that that plays not only in transforming all of medical care, but the medical care of children in particular, since it's bacteriological diseases that are the most prominent killers of children. Mm -hmm. So when it becomes medically possible to prevent disease, and in the case of diphtheria antitoxin, actually cure a disease once a child actually has it, now these things kick in as a matter of urgency. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's what we're really seeing here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the cases would never have come to the public's attention if there weren't new religions mm -hmm. that specifically forbid the use of scientific medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and that was interesting, too. That was something that I had to spend a lot of time with because I didn't feel like I understood them. Mm -hmm. I really didn't understand the context that they were arising out of, and I needed to do that. And so I did spend a lot of time just delving into, you know, um, both the, the whole thread of new thought and metaphysics that produced 
Christian Science, mm-hmm. and the thread of um, the Divine Healing Movement that John Alexander Dowie broke away from. Uh, I was interested in how both of these leaders, Dowie and Mary Baker Eddy, um, you know, they expressly set their religion against science. It's anti-medicine. Mm-hmm. And that is really, really different from other Christian traditions where there is a, you know, a, some sort of combination of mm-hmm. spiritual and physical healing. But that's what's very different about these leaders. Mm-hmm. And so that, that uh, prohibition is what gets people in trouble. Right. You have a chapter on the physical child. Yes. And a chapter on the metaphysical child. <laughs> yes. It's a very nice juxtaposition there. These things seem to be emerging at the same time. Mm-hmm. Is the metaphysical child emerging in response to the physical child? Is that the connection that you see? That's how I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I certainly do think that, and and certainly other historians have have talked about this that the religions that appear in the last quarter of the. 19th century, like Christian science, like Dowie's church, um, they are specifically anti-modernist, anti-science. And in fact, uh, Christian scientists in particular use this term scientific materialism. And what they mean is that they, they have a problem with reducing everything, including children, simply to their uh, material entities. Mm-hmm. In a large part, that's a reaction against Darwinism, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're more than just a species of animals. And so these religions, I think, very much are a reaction against that. And it's interesting to see how ideas about children uh, come into play there. And you can, you can really see that clash of ideas when you look at how they talk about children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fascinated to read uh, all the various editions of Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, Mary Baker Eddy's uh, book, and the foundational text of Christian Science, how she talked about children uh, in these metaphysical terms, which was in direct contrast (laughs) to these other developments that were going on in medicine and in child welfare that were attending to the physical needs of children. Absolutely. Could you spend a little bit of time talking about the book jacket cover? <laughs> yeah, the, the illustration. The image, yes. Um, I was really happy that I found this illustration. This is actually the insertion of what were called O'Dwyer tubes in a child. Uh, they were used for opening up the airways, which is the big risk in diphtheria. Diphtheria is a bacterial infection that causes the cells to discharge um, matter, toxic matter, that forms what they call a pseudomembrane, and it grows in uh, the mucous membranes. And so it covers the throat, the nose, the nasal passages. Uh, Any medical writing, and I read a lot of this, Mm -hmm. uh, that talks about death from diphtheria, it it was a horrible thing to witness. The child slowly chokes to death, and it's a terrible thing to witness. 
Uh, tracheotomy was used for a while, but that had dangers of its own, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea of the O'Dwyer tubes, uh, as kind of horrifying as they seem, was that they could be inserted and it could prop open the airways and allow the child to breathe. And so before the development of diphtheria antitoxin, which is actually capable of stopping the spread of the bacterial infection that's causing this, uh, this was the best that you could do. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you can imagine, I think this illustration shows this really clearly. It was a team effort. Mm -hmm. It was probably pretty horrendous for the child. It was probably pretty horrendous for the child's parents to watch. Uh, and, and of course, it wasn't always successful, but it was, you know, for a long time, it was the best hope you had that the, that the child could still breathe. And so this illustration to me, uh, particularly since the child is at the very center of the picture, and that's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then you see this whole team of people, all of these different threads, right, uh, of uh, child welfare and medicine and uh they're not represented there, but you could say religious uh, leaders and parents, right? Mm-hmm. All of these people, judges <laughs> who are concerned about children, there they are, right? Sort of symbolically surrounding this very small child. And the the image really captures the, the net that the child finds itself in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder who... Who do you see as the heroes of your story? Are they these medical men who are working so hard to to save this child's life? That is a wonderful question, and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I have written about, and many, many historians have written about um, clashes particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, between right what came to be thought of as regular medicine, right, and other medical sects, right? And certainly organizations like the American Medical Association, they were aggressive uh, in kind of saying, we're going to dominate in the medical marketplace. Um, and yet, at the same time, I'm not willing to say that diphtheria antitoxin wasn't a really wonderful thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I think this is not simply a story of scientific progress. I think it's mm-hmm. a, a story where things are much more complicated than that. Uh, for example, almost you know so many of the major players themselves lost children, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham Jacoby is often thought of as the father of American pediatrics. His wife, also a prominent physician, mm-hmm. lost their own son to diphtheria. Mm-hmm. And the, the horrible realization that must have come over them to realize that they may have played a role in infecting their own child, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's amazing to me. Uh, I talk as other historians have about Mary Baker Eddy, her own separation from her own child. Um, She clearly had a fraught relationship with the whole concept of motherhood 
and then uh, John Alexander Dowie, the divine healer whose own daughter died a terrible death, uh, and at the last minute, he called a medical doctor to come and try to mm-hmm. save her. I, I was just, that, that was story. an amazing story yeah. to me. So I saw all of these people as having a really complicated relationship uh, with childhood, but also really with medicine itself and with science. Um, so again, I think it comes across clearly if we simply don't say, this is religious freedom versus medical science. I, mm-hmm. I think we see really that these people had a lot more complicated relationships here than we might realize. You know, Mary Baker Eddy's Massachusetts Metaphysical College, she advertised herself as a professor of obstetrics originally. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk, you know, they had a class in metaphysical obstetrics. Uh, and I talk about why that didn't work out so well, right? And after a while, they simply just, you know, she was able to say, Obstetrics is not Christian science. And so you could just sort of, okay, we're not going to practice it anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Without really having to resolve what those complications really are. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I think that that's different than saying the dilemma was actually solved. You know, what she did was she made a rule that really protected her church, I think, from legal liability, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is really different than saying, yeah, but you still have these people who are saying, how do we integrate our religious beliefs with childbirth? You know, you, you never solve the problem for them. You must have, in the course of doing this research and, and you know, seeing the book into publication, you must have thought about some of our contemporary parallels, mm-hmm. such as immunization and the controversy over mm-hmm. anti-vaccination movement. Mm-hmm. Um, could you speak a little bit about where you, if if you see this story as having any kind of contemporary relevance to us? Oh today? sure. Yeah. Um, I think you know when I when I finish this interview, I think I will take out my hand sanitizer and <laughs> <laughs> as we are being advised to do, right? Um, yes. Um, I think uh, you know there have been just wonderful books. Michael Wilrich and Robert Johnston and Karen Wallach, who have written about the history of anti-vaccinationism. Um, I think I, I even think about this maybe in a little bit broader way, in a little bit more abstract way, which is really what are the lessons that we take from this? Uh, how, how do we understand um, attitudes and what, why is it that people think what they think, right? Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Uh, historicizing this mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. is always really interesting to me. Um, sometimes I think you can make par- parallels. Sometimes you, you have to say, well, there's a lot of change in 100 years, and so we, we can't just jump right from, from one century to our own, our own time. Uh, but certainly it's relevant, I think, in terms of how scientific knowledge is understood, how it changes things considerably beyond uh, just one simple case. Uh, to me, what was fascinating about diphtheria antitoxin is that it was a game changer. It was 
a an epistemological changer you know it's it's the first time you can actually cure you can stop the spread of a bacterial infection and it was effective within 12 to 24 hours of giving it so you literally could watch it stop right in front of your eyes i find that fascinating right so on the one hand we have kind of abstractions on the other hand there was the ability to see something right in front of your face Mm -hmm. Uh, and that just fascinated me Um, one of the things I think that was really tricky about the Christian science cases and I and I tried to be clear about distinguishing the Taoist followers from Christian scientists and and they're at the center of the story because most of the cases were about them there were other groups that also got in trouble and other historians have included them. I, I focused on, on these two because they were the majority of cases. Um, and But for them, there's clear differences in, there's no love lost between Mary Baker Eddy and John Alexander Dowie. They see themselves as competitors. For Dowie, uh, the physical suffering's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he dwells in depictions of suffering. His own descriptions of his daughter's final hours are horrifying. I didn't include most of that in there. I mm-hmm. thought, oh my goodness, I'm not even going to include it. So they're shockingly graphic. Um, but the cause of that suffering was sin. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the only way to cure it was God. That was the only power. Unless you happen to be Dowie and you can challenge, uh, channel God's power through your hands. Christian scientists, on the other hand, they are much more complicated because they don't believe, or they didn't, believe in the reality of sickness. They denied the very reality of it. It simply wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And the way that you deal with sickness is to convince people they don't have it, which is a very different thing. And, and one of the things that fascinated me was how the courts had to deal with that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so these medical neglect laws are written, and well, what do you do? What do you do with people who not only refuse to acknowledge that their child is sick, they refuse to acknowledge the child's dead, right? So mm-hmm. where, what do you do with that? <laughs> it's a matter of law. <laughs> it makes it very complicated. Um, the one case I talked about, uh, the Reed case, the little girl named Sarah Reed mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. that to me was the most amazing illustration of all this was in 1902. And um, the parents called, I think, six different healers and a medical doctor. So there they are, desperately trying everything that they think will work. The medical doctor walks in, she says, oh my goodness, this child clearly has diphtheria. I can tell, her head's thrown backwards. She's struggling to breathe, she's blue. I'm sure she has diphtheria. You have to give her antitoxin right now. She also took a swab of the child's throat so she could take it to the laboratory and see it. Yes. She has diphtheria. I see the bacteria under the microscope, right? So she could see the physical symptoms on the child's body. She could see it in a laboratory on a slide, right? Mm -hmm. Yet when she called the parents to tell them, they said, no, she's fine. We don't need anything. She's fine. And then the parents called her back and said, well, you need to sign her death certificate. So, yeah. So how how do you deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and the doctor, I thought it was interesting, the doctor having to distance herself from that legally as well, right? Because she's saying, no, 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 I, I wasn't the attending physician. It wasn't me. It wasn't me, right? She's keeping herself arm's length from them as well. I, I won't sign that. So, uh, again, for me, I'm seeing all of these things that play out, and then the, the big question is, well, how much of that? do we apply today? How much doesn't apply today? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think we have to be, you know, just sort of careful. Um, I think what it does is it stimulates us to say, these are problems and we need to address them. Mm-hmm. And we can see how people did them in the past and we can maybe understand something about how, how we framed issues and we framed topics today. Uh, we certainly, because of the... Um, specific provisions that are in state law, federal law, about the protection of parents' religious freedom, uh, you know, as we know, we, we grant a lot of leeway to parents, um, more so than really many other nations. Um, and it is something for us to think about, I think. Uh, you're probably aware of the fact that Maine just had a mm-hmm. referendum uh, last week, I guess, or, or within the last few weeks about their own religious exemptions to vaccination, mm-hmm. uh, kind of rethinking this. Uh, it's interesting to think, why do we have them and what are they doing there and what are the possible consequences? Uh, ultimately, uh, what I came to the conclusion after really looking at these cases carefully and thinking about this a lot is, to me, it was actually a, a larger question that ultimately as Americans, we don't seem to be able to bring ourselves to say that all children deserve health care. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that to me was the was the larger takeaway that I that I got from this, even even beyond vaccinationism or, or anything else, was we've never been able to bring ourselves to say healthcare is a child's right. Mm-hmm. Therefore, mm-hmm. <laughs> children have a right to have these things. No, no, they don't. And uh, as shocking as that seems, that is, in fact, what we've ultimately decided. And in terms of where you think the research ought to go Mm -hmm. now, one of the the questions that I had was, if someone were to try to put, the story that you tell is very much a story about adults making decisions Mm -hmm. on behalf of children. Mm -hmm. If someone wanted to put the children at the center mm-hmm. is there any advice that you could give for the kinds of sources that would be available or do you think that did, did you encounter sources that could be used for thinking about the child's perspective um, in these debates or similar debates um, I think the obvious answer is just the age of the child mm-hmm. uh, so many of the cases that I'm looking at the children are very very small mm-hmm. the first case that child, uh, the J. Luther Pearson, his daughter was only, what, 16 months old, I guess, mm-hmm. or 18 months old. Most of the children we're talking about are, you know, 10 and under. So, so they're, they're, these are little kids, um, and I think unlikely to have left a lot. It's yeah, a perennial problem. Yes, yes. Right? Uh, later cases, more, more recent cases, uh, including the ones that Alan Rogers wrote about, in, in his book, more the more recent the, the Christian Science controversies that came about in in like the 1980s um, and 1990s, um, there were a couple of those where the the child in question was older, and 
did in fact uh, express their own preferences. I know in the European literature, which I did explore, mm -hmm. but ultimately it didn't make its way into this book, um, was that question is much more a question of concern. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of writing about children's autonomy, their decision-making ability, their right to make decisions about their own bodies, mm -hmm. uh, separate and apart from adults. That discussion, it's not a big question in, in U.S. literature. It's, it's just not. We don't really even talk about it that much. And certainly your work and your research, you see this, I think, a lot more clearly, right, That in, in your area. Yeah, absolutely. The child abuse in Germany, yeah, and the question of psychological abuse and um, the extent to which children are able to voice their own interests and their own concerns, um, even in the early 20th century. Um, but so to sort of expand the question a little bit more broadly, where do you, where do you see the research going from here? I started with these cases and uh, identified who these people were and I tried to find out more about them and what they believed and what, you know, who were they listening to and why did it turn out this way. Uh, and as a result, I th you know, I'm looking at a limited sample of people. So because I started with the cases, um, I'm not looking at sort of larger groups of people or a more uh, diverse sample or a, a more inclusive set of people. So mm -hmm. um, my focus is, in fact, quite narrow. It, it, people are almost exclusively white because that's who showed up in these cases. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost exclusively on Christian science and Dowie's followers because that's who showed up. You mm -hmm. know, that's who got prosecuted. Um, but certainly these same kinds of questions would be, I mean, there's so many areas to explore where differences, important differences uh, with race and ethnicity and region. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, I think, dimensions that mm -hmm. absolutely would be out there to explore that, that I just didn't even go near. I, I felt yeah. like just weaving the story of changes in the history of medicine, changes in the history of law, changes in child welfare and the history of childhood. I, I felt like that was enough of a story that I was weaving together and, and I realized my limitations, but I also realized for the sense, uh, you know, for the sake of making a, 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 a book that ended somewhere, <laughs> I, I cut it off. <laughs> and I think that is the mark of a successful book, that it raises questions as well as answers them. I can't tell you how pleased I am to see this book in publication <laughs> after you. having, you know, read portions of it um, over the years and talked with you about it. Um, over the I years. benefited from your feedback so much, so thank you. It's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you about this finished product. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.